Chris Cutler. This is Probes number 29. In this episode, we look at animals, vegetables, and one or two minerals. Animals have probably influenced music from its very beginning. In fact, from before its beginning. In the written record, we find birdsong included in musical scores going back to at least the early 14th century. And in recent times, one has only to consider the output of the French composer Olivier Messiaen, who studied and annotated birdsong throughout his life and used his transcriptions as primary compositional material in many works, not least the seven books of piano music that constitute his catalogue of birds, or the dense ensemble works like Oiseau Exotique, or this, taken from the sixth movement of Chronochromie, in which 18 violins play the songs of 18 different birds in a musical approximation of the dawn chorus. Although this is not strictly relevant to our topic, because these are not birds but modified transcriptions, I want to play it here anyway as a useful point of reference. same year, that's 1960, Jim Fassett, who was then the assistant music director of CBS Radio, released his Symphony of the Birds. An impressive achievement at any time, this work, made with engineer Mortimer Goldberg, was even more remarkable given the state of technology pertaining at the time. The only processing used was occasionally to slow down some of the recordings. Where Oliver Messiaen's dawn chorus replaces birds with violins, Bassett takes recordings of living birds and organises them into a formal composition. 
Created for a single afternoon broadcast, this fascinating experiment was eventually released on one side of a now very collectible LP. Here are the first two minutes of it. It's unusual to put real birds and orchestras together. The man who did it first, using a recording, was the Italian composer Ottorino Respighi, who, as we learned in the last episode, courted controversy by flying a nightingale out of the horn of a phonograph and into his tone poem, The Pines of Rome, in 1924. That also made him the first person to introduce a recording into an orchestral work. A mere handful of composers have followed since, most notably the Finnish composer Aino Juhani Rautavara, who built his 1972 concerto Cantus Arcticus around collected field recordings of birds from northern Finland.
In 2003, the enigmatic American death metal grindcore band Hatebeak, consisting of drummer Blake Harrison and guitarist and bassist Mark Sloan, went much further when they invited Waldo, an African grey parrot, to become their lead vocalist. And before you ask, they've made four albums so far, as well as working with the Swedish grindcore band Birdflesh, who in the parallel universe of metal are considered to be quite humorous. This is Seven Perches from Hate Beak's 2015 comeback album, The Number of the Beak. In 2005, Hatebeak joined forces with the death grind band Caninus, whose vocals at the time were being handled by two female pit bull terriers. Caninus had already made one album on their own before making the shared release, and they went on to make another. Although curiously, they don't seem to appear anywhere in the Encyclopedia Metallum. Their records are real enough, though. Here are the pit bulls, Budgie and Basil, singing Brindle Brickheads. part of the forest, the American violinist, composer, researcher and author Hollis Taylor has been researching birdsong in an academic setting for over a decade, leaving a trail of papers and lectures behind. With a performing path that winds through the Oregon Symphony Orchestra, jazz and East European folk music, 
formal composition and in the company of fellow violinist and polymath John Rose, playing most of Australia's great fences. She has also become a leading authority on the lyrebird, the bowerbird and the pied butcherbird, all of whose songs, recomposed or taken straight from the avian beak, have populated her recent compositional work sharing space with traffic, frogs, insects and any other mammals that pop up in the soundscapes with which she works. Here's an extract from one of her bird collaborations, Owen Springs Reserve, for Butcher Bird and Vibraphone. In America, the composer and environmental activist Jim Nolman decided to get down on all fours with the animal kingdom and interact with it in real time. In 1978, he set up his non-profit organisation, Interspecies, to facilitate interactions between artists and animals, in part as a counterweight to investigations that were purely scientific. He also embarked on a series of personal musical encounters which involved taking his instruments to animals, making sure they could hear what he was doing and then attempting to play with them, compiling, in 1982, his manifesto album Playing Music with Turkeys, Whales and Wolves. Here, the cellist Sybil Glebau takes her turn with the wolves, which were in fact housed in a large cage in the American Wolf Sanctuary. Nolman reported afterwards that they were not given to much improvisatory call and response and would stop if we got too radical.
this early stage in the series, I'm trying to avoid purely electronic productions. I think this one should be mentioned. It's from Philip Kent Bimstein's hard-to-categorise sound reportage piece, Garland Hirsch's Cows, in which Mr Hirsch speaks about his cows and the cows speak about whatever it is cows speak about. What I like about this composition is that Bimstein doesn't stray from the human and social dimension and he makes no assumptions about cow culture. He's just interested in, and I think respectful of, their voices. This extract is from the second movement, Pastoral, made in 1990. Garland C. Hershey, Rockville, Utah. <laughs> Born in Rockville, 1926. When I first was born that way, we, my dad had a little, just a two-room house. Growing up, like everybody in town used to have cattle. Then you had to raise what you lived on then. Everybody at least had one or two pigs that they'd kill. While bird vocalization is ubiquitous and predates the emergence of our own species, most of us were unaware that whales did something very similar until researchers started to use hydrophones in the early 1950s. It took 20 more years for the sounds they heard to be analysed and categorically linked to the creatures who made them. Meanwhile, the American Navy, with its long-established network of hydrophonic monitoring stations on permanent lookout for Russian submarines, had been aware of the contents of the undersea soundscape for several decades, but had just decided to keep quiet about them. Perhaps it was a question of secrecy, but it's more likely that they just didn't care, since as far as they were concerned, if it wasn't a submarine, it was just noise. Eventually, an echolocation specialist, Richard Payne, became curious about whale song and managed to get access to a significant body of the Navy's recordings. After making further recordings himself and analysing all the data, he and fellow academic Scott McVeigh published their seminal paper Songs of Humpbacked Whales in 1971, 
in which they recognised in the coherence, regularity and variation of whale vocalisation the character of song. This purely academic exercise became a global phenomenon when Payne released a small-run LP on the Communications Research Machines Inc. label, which was then licensed on to the more corporate Capitol Records, where it sold hundreds of thousands of copies and became a cult classic. Since then, it's been repeatedly re-licensed as now a multi-platinum monument. The Wales didn't get any royalties, but they did benefit in other ways. Musical communication with Wales came some time later, and again it was Jim Nolman who set up his amplifier in the sea and went regularly to play waterphone or metal guitar with his local pod. Here's the track Nolman calls The Lesson, because he believed it showed the orcas instructing him in song, repeating phrases, breaking them up and slowing them down. He advances this recording as evidence of meaningful interaction, and it certainly caused some controversy when he presented it to a meeting of the International Whaling Commission. David Rothenberg, an American composer, jazz clarinetist and author of popular books on the relation between music and the natural world, also spends quite a bit of his life setting up situations in which he can play with, or at least play along with, mammals and insects. I don't doubt his sincerity, though like many in this field, he does strike me as rather starry-eyed. Here he is, following in Nolman's footsteps a quarter of a century later, playing his clarinet through underwater speakers with whales. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And while we're here, I should at least mention the American mainstream jazz saxophonist Paul Winter, another musician who has travelled widely and embraced capital M Mother Nature as a source of meaningful playing opportunities. Okay, yes, I have a declaration of interest to make. My instinctive reaction to the more gooey of these good-hearted endeavours is... Well, you remember when Werner Herzog freeze-frames the bear's face in the film Grizzly and says, There is no such thing as a secret world of the bears, and this blank stare speaks only of a half-bored interest in food. But for Timothy Treadwell, this bear was a friend, a saviour. Winter's group has also made several CDs on which they imitate, channel or specifically incorporate recordings of whales, birds and wolves. In fact, the usual suspects. No pigs or mice or wildebeest. Well, I agree. And as an independent Equal Opportunities podcaster, here are some pigs and mice and wildebeest. And before I move on, I have to mention Bernie Krause and Paul Beaver. The young Bernie Krause had been both a session guitarist and a member of the Weavers before he moved out to Oakland to study electronic music, where he met Paul Beaver. Beaver's route to electronics came through jazz. We met him in Probe 16, working on the indispensable Zodiac Cosmic Sounds. In 1966, this duo became one of Robert Moog's first customers and quickly set up a company called Parasound to provide Moog modular synthesizer services to the world at large. They were even canny enough to set up a Moog booth at the 1967 Monterey Jazz Festival. It turned out to be a smart move because the modular synth was the right instrument at the right time and the session started pouring in with the birds, Stevie Wonder, The Doors, Van Morrison, George Harrison, everybody seemed to want some Moog on their new album or in their Hollywood movie. So for several years, Paul and Bernie became the go-to guys for Moog. They also found time to release albums under their own names, one of which, In a Wild Sanctuary, was the first to integrate soundscape recordings into musical compositions. If you discount the rainstorms and tropical forests on thousands of hi-fi stereo exotica albums on the grounds that these are sound effects rather than soundscapes. When Paul Beaver died unexpectedly in 1975, Bernie Krause began increasingly to dedicate his energies solely to the documentation and study of acoustic ecologies. Like Hollis Taylor, Krauss took a more analytical and clear-eyed approach to the natural world, mapping, in his case, the way the inhabitants of specific environments evolved to occupy stratified acoustic niches, like radio stations assigned exclusive frequencies, thereby maintaining communicational functionality in their immediate sonic environment. In the last three decades, Krauss has amassed more than 5,000 hours of recordings, which include a wealth of comparative sound prints taken at multiple locations before and after major ecological interventions. Interventions that miscellaneous companies and governments had mendaciously claimed would have little or no environmental impact, 
and which Krauss is now able to prove unequivocally to have been catastrophic. This is useful work. Krauss says that more than half the natural habitats he's recorded in the last half century have since fallen silent or become unrecognisable. The younger Krauss, however, wasn't above making rather more dubious use of animal recordings, especially on his 1988 release, Gorillas in the Mix, the sleeve notes of which proudly state that all the sounds included on it were derived only from animals. By derived, he really means sampled, edited, repitched, and processed to destruction. It's a record that tells you more about the addictive steamroller power of technology than the authentic voice of nature. Not that it isn't interesting for that. The sources credited for this track, Fish Rap, are listed as killer and humpback whales, walruses, red drumfish, Atlantic croakerfish, French angelfish, striped sea robin, horned sculpinfish, and both smooth and northern pufferfishes. century novel, The Tale of Genji, the protagonist speaks at one point of playing a koto, quote, in concert with the cicadas, purposely using their chirruping as part of the accompaniment. A thousand years later, the writer and wind player David Rothenberg is doing much the same thing, though radically updating the process with electronic technologies. He claims in his book Bug Music, How Insects Gave Us Rhythm and Noise, that insects were our original teachers of rhythm, even going on to suggest that music evolved out of millions of years of listening to bugs. Though this book does bring together a useful overview of research into the sounds that insects make and the way that they've been used and thought about by different cultures and in different times, it's more of a pian to insects than a serious argument. 
What remains is the obvious. Yes, of course, insects, along with thousands of other things, have had and continue to have an influence on some aspects of human musicking. The rest, it seems to me, is unnecessary hyperbole. On the CD that accompanies the book, Rothenberg offers a collection of interesting and inventive pieces. On most, he samples and loops and manipulates insect sounds and then plays along with them, or constructs loose compositions out of them, as one might with any sounds using today's technology. And indeed, as the New Zealand film composer Graham Revel did some 30 years ago on his 1986 LP, The Insect Musicians, a record on which only insect sounds are used. It was also, in the manner of the times, far better documented in the accompanying booklet than Rothenberg's release, which is frustratingly uninformative. But then, the motivations of these two musicians were very different. Revel wanted to build a whole music from recorded insect sounds alone, while Rothenberg wanted to connect the insect and human worlds. And indeed, on one or two tracks, he does just that, heading out into a field and jamming, like Genji, with the cicadas. But mostly, like Revel, he treats and processes and reorganises recorded insects which he or someone else had collected earlier. It's interesting, and it works, but the aesthetic is purely human. In the following extract, he constructs a bed of snowy tree crickets, though he doesn't explain, unfortunately, how much is natural and how much processed, over which the overtone singer Timothy Hill vocalises. This was recorded in 2013. In various cultures, plant materials are used as percussion instruments, gourds, scrapers and rattlers for the most part. And unsurprisingly, John Cage didn't turn down the opportunity to write for them, adopting the cartridge music principle and amplifying them with transducers. Child of Tree came first in 1975, after one of Merce Cunningham's dancers had brought in a cactus and demonstrated the sounds the spines made when plucked. Child of Tree was written for a single performer and the published score consisted of a few scrawled pages with a lot of deliberate crossings out, the function of which was first to guide the performer in the selection of ten instruments, all of which must be plant materials, such as leaves, cacti or branches, 
and second, how to divide a fixed duration of eight minutes into several sections by means of the I Ching. No content is specified, and the score merely stipulates, using a stopwatch, the soloist improvises, clarifying the time structure by means of the instruments. This improvisation is the performance. A year later, Cage published Branches, an extension and variation on Child of Tree. It's for several players and is longer, separating the different sections with substantial silences. Here's an extract from a solo version of the piece as interpreted by Robin Schakowsky. Here's one of my own cactus solos from a concert in 2009.
With stones, we are in border territory. Parts of this topic will surface in other programs, if we ever get there, so here I'll just mention one or two broad areas of interest and give a few examples of cases in which stones have played an important compositional role. Stones have probably been involved in musicking since this activity emerged 60 to 30,000 years ago, which is when similar phenomena such as cave art, jewellery and ritual burial also appeared, and it's generally agreed that music, which is to say the making of coordinated, non-linguistic, intentional sounds, probably emerged at the same time. Stones also populate the researches of paleomusicologists and archaeacousticians in the form of ringing rocks, lithophones and investigations of the acoustic qualities of cave sites, stalactites, stalagmites and stone circles. In The Great Learning, a six or seven hour work in seven paragraphs based on the writings of Confucius and scored for a large ensemble of both high and low formal musical skills. The British composer Cornelius Cardew calls for an organ and a chorus of singers who also play stones and whistles. Stones, because cut and tuned, they were often used in Chinese classical music. Paragraph 1 was a commission from the John Aldiss Choir, who premiered it in 1968, and it was in gathering an ensemble to play for the premiere of Paragraph 2, which had been booked for the Cavernous Roundhouse in London, that the seeds of the Scratch Orchestra were first sown. Although the piece had been rehearsed by a group of around 20, it was clear that in order to fill the roundhouse with sound as the piece required, a lot more players would be needed, so a pool of friends and students was recruited to make up the numbers. It was this pool, Cardew said in a BBC interview later, that became the Scratch Orchestra and went on to perform, amongst many other things, most of the other paragraphs of the great learning. Here's the beginning of a performance of Paragraph 1, played by the Scratch Orchestra at London's Queen Elizabeth Hall in 1982. More or less the same time, the American composer Christian Wolff wrote Stones, which, unlike Cardew's score, was unstructured and without given material. It was more like a fluxus piece, in fact, written as a set of very open instructions, to wit, 
make sounds with stones using a number of sizes and colours, for the most part striking stones with stones, but also bowed, for instance, or amplified. Do not break anything. In this version, there are four players. The New Zealand composer Philip Dadson, while studying in London, had been a member of that first incarnation of the Scratch Orchestra while Cardew was working through the great learning. And on his return to New Zealand a year later, he set up the Scratch Orchestra NZ, which in 1974 renamed itself From Scratch. Like many original Scratch Orchestra members, Dadson went on to work routinely with household objects, industrial objects and invented instruments, which he deployed easily alongside more conventional resources. Here's an extract from his 1995 installation piece, The Archaeology of Stones, which is scored entirely for stones. Thank <laughs> you. 
All the stones we've heard so far have been struck or rubbed together, but from the world of sculpture and by a route that so far none of the surviving practitioners has been able to elucidate, a method of scoring deep parallel grooves into smaller stones was discovered, or possibly rediscovered, that allowed them to be played like wine glasses with moistened hands, a bit as you might stroke a cat, to produce ethereal and otherworldly sounds. This practice seems to have originated with the German sculptor Elmar Dauscher, whose work in this area dates back to the beginning of the 1970s. He was followed, about a decade later, by Arthur Schneider in Switzerland and Pinocchio Sciola in Sardinia. Of the three, Sciola is the most sonically diverse, with works designed variously to be struck, scraped and stroked. Here, in a documentary made in 2010, he demonstrates all three approaches. side, it was the German composer Klaus Fessmann who took up the cause of stroked lithophones, directly inspired by Elmar Dausch's original researches. With his son Hannes, he went on to perfect the designs of a wide variety of wet-stroked singing stones intended for both musical and therapeutic purposes. In 1997, he formed the ensemble Klangstein with eight sounding stones, cello, electric cello and a percussion set made from rocks and water. And in 2012, the electric cellist and composer Friedemann Dan composed Aura for sounding stone and string orchestra. Here's a short extract from it, featuring mostly the stone.
And for the stone alone, here's Hannes Fessmann. As Cornelius Cardi recognised, Chinese traditional music has long made use of stones, referenced here by the Chinese composer Tan Dun in his multimedia work The Map, written in 2002, for cello, video and orchestra. Thank <laughs> you. 
And we'll be following Tandan into our next programme, which looks at water, ice, fire and, of course, polystyrene. I'm Chris Cutler. This has been Probes. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think 